0: faces, we've had a little gap, but we're back on the roll now, Aziz and Ashaya are back from their travels, and uh, we're kicking things off with the uh, with the end of Game of Thrones, last two episodes, last two parts of Valar readers So hello, uh, in case you've forgotten, I am Sir Berkeley. I'm talking to you from a quite misty, rainy England, it is the time of year, we're going to be getting a lot more of that, can't wait for my dog walks. And uh, yes, like I say, we are in the. We've got this one, and then one more, and then Game of Thrones is done. So it's all coming to a head. But personally, very busy this week with uh, the good old Castles book, so I'm going to try and get this into a nice compact episode for you so I won't waste too much time. Let's uh, head straight into what chapters we are looking at today. And it is Catlin 9, the one with Wald of Frey. There's John 8, the one with Longclaw. Daenerys 7, the one where Drogo is quite bad and mean to people again. Tyrion eight, the Battle of the Green Fork with Shay and more importantly with Pod. Catelyn ten, the, the Whispering Woods. Daenerys eight and two Daenerys today. The one where the Karstark blows itself up essentially. And finally, I of five, which everyone should already know, is the one where we wave goodbye to Neddy Ned, Ned Ned. So, like I say. I'm going to try and get straight into it today. They go quite quickly. as These got through uh, most of my notes anyway, but we have some leftovers, some scraps and scrolls, you might call them. And yeah, let's get into it. So Catalin 9, where Catalin is witness to uh, the the crossing as she's present for the, the great conundrum that is presented before Rob. Basically the first real conflict Rob comes into. It's not been too bad so far. Called his banners, banners came, go to Moat Kaelin. no troubles there come a little bit further down, and now there's problems because Tywin's on one side of the Green Fork and uh, Riverrunner's on the other and Rob is on the side of Tywin, obviously not the side he wants to be on. So he needs to get across. And immediately this chapter is showing us Catelyn's worth in Rob's war councils because remember in her previous chapter there was a question of her returning home, going back to Winterfell, which would have been nice for us and Bran and her as well. But she decided... Rob was the one in greater need and it's hard to argue with her because uh, things could have gone very differently without her in this chapter. Rob needs a lot of different things in his campaign. He needs strong warriors like the Great John. He needs the uh, the tactical strat- strategy thinking uh, commanders like the Blackfish is absolutely obviously critical for his many victories. But he also needs people with uh, political strengths and critical thinking skills and someone who can look at things a bit Differently, And also, he is going into the Riverland, so what better to use someone who grew up there? Now, he does put Brynden, who obviously grew up there, to great use, but for that political side, he needs Catelyn, because Catelyn was raised by hosters as we know from her. Uh, we do get a little bit of it in this book, but more in Clash and Storm. Catelyn was raised as the Lady of Riverrun after her mother passed and because she was uh, so much older than Edmure. So she knows a lot about her bannermen and the political landscape as we've already seen before when she took Tyrion. So she puts that to good use and already proves she made the right choice in coming along for this for this ride. So talking of the twins, this this whole chapter is basically one big game of Lord of the Crossing, the game that <laughs> Bran has to play with the two Walder's back at Winterfell and Clash. I mean, that game is just the history of the phrase, isn't it? Someone wants to cross, and um, they can decide whether they let them or not, depending on what they offer. Boom, here we go. Rob wants to cross. Walder says, well, what are you going to give me? And we know how that ends up. When, and we'll come to Walder uh, in a minute, but we also get a lot of Rob in this chapter. As, obviously, that's what Catlin's for is showing us about Rob. And uh, let me read this quote to you. So it says... Each day he would ask one of his lords to join him, so they might confer as they marched. He honoured every man in turn, showing no favourites, listening as, as his lord father had listened, weighing the words of one against the other. So that's Callan thinking about how Rob's uh, working his men, and we've got almost that exact same quote from Aya, th- we're thinking about Ned. So this is Rob really putting Ned's tutelage to work here, as we've already seen through Brand's POV back when Rob was at Winterfell. So he's been doing. He's been able to do it at home, going around the lords, and it's kind of essentially peacetime. Now he's doing it at wartime as well. He knows what he's doing, essentially. And this whole chapter is a big choice for Rob. He can. He could have chosen very differently if he'd been a bit more selfish. Certainly, if we imagine other characters in his place, we could see definite different, different outcomes. But Rob chooses the overall war effort and the eventual goal of saving Ned over his own personal happiness or future life when Edmure is presented with the choice to or the um, proposition of marrying one of Walder's daughters he gets quite huffy and thinking about well, hang on which one and etc etc none of that from Rob he's just okay whatever needs doing let's do it and considering that Rob is soon to be a king we can see this kind of a test of his his kingliness or worthiness and he certainly he certainly passes that but let's talk about Waldo a bit more because the first time you you read this I think he kind of comes off as more comical he's this old little weasel and he talks in a particularly blunt way and I don't think you even though he's obviously horrible I don't think you really get the sense of what's about to come if you didn't know about the the red wedding before you're definitely not guessing that even though when we look back now we can see plenty and plenty of, um, of foreshadowing and I actually like to compare Walder Frey I think he's an odd mirror to Craster because they're both uh they're both men with huge families and they both take advantage of their specific point in geography to exploit others and in the end both have their fates tied to right, even though it's kind of an opposite outcome. Walder profits and Craster definitely does not. But they're well, they're both pretty damn unpleasant and there's um well, there's some incesty vibes. A bit more subtle, a bit more unavoidable when there's as many phrases there are, but uh, still worthy of comparison, I think. Now, I think Walder, he blatantly lies about trying to send his swords to Edmure. He says about, uh, that he couldn't gather them in time and get them to Riverrun. I call uh, BS. And I think it supports the notion that the Red Wedding didn't come about solely because of uh, Robin Jane. I think he's had some uh, opposing thoughts to this on, on Sunday. But he, I think he's been looking for this kind of revenge for a while. I don't think he already had... Right, I'll get, I'll get him to promise that um, he'll marry one of my daughters and then hopefully something will go wrong and then I'll murder them all. I don't think he was thinking that, but it was always bubbling under the surface. He's always been angry at the Tullys and uh, Rob just kind of opens up the avenue for how that can come about already at the beginning of this chapter it starts talking about how untrustworthy and how self-serving this is so it doesn't just come about because of Robin jane and this is something obviously the show couldn't have got into because there's just not enough time but there's a whole backlog he is what 90 and he's got so he's got nearly a century of thinking that the tullys are not worthy of his uh loyalty and that he gets looked down upon it's all under the surface, but obviously Rob's, not only who Rob chooses, but how and etc. etc. that is the spark tree. Speaking of Rob, he's, so he's not crowned yet, that's soon to come, but even as future, even as heir to Winterfell, he should likely know that he's worth more than a fray in terms of portrayals. And later on, it's raised about how, oh, if he could have marry Marjorie and then that would have really changed things. That would have really helped out the war effort even more than, just this bridge. And there's also more than a few candidates who would have been happy to help kill Lannisters. So, we, I mean, we can't blame him. He does need the bridge, and it obviously ends up in success because he gets across, as we're going to see throughout this episode and next. Gets across and River Run, But it's kind of short-term versus long-term. But then again, how is Rob to know that? So, fair enough, fair enough. I guess he should have at least taken... He could have taken the fray proposal but been, but been willing to break it for all the women who could change the war effort. That's the thing. He breaks it for Jane Westerling who, bless her, doesn't change anything. If he had broken it for Marjorie Tyrell, different thing. But then again, he probably wouldn't have anyway, would he? Because he is Rob. We also get a first reference to uh, General Lannister here. Not directly, but uh, just it's just a question of sprinkling seeds between Lannister and Frey connections. And it does go to show that the Freys will go out of the realm to marry as well as some subject matter for Titus Lannister, which is going to come back in future books. So finally for this chapter, I noticed there was, um, there's multiple references to phrase boiling or wolder being roasted over a spit. Uh, I wonder if George was leaving it open that maybe uh, dragons would come and burning or boiling or roasting would be the end of the phrase. And uh, maybe that is still possible, although most of us think uh, they'll end up in the mouths of wolves. But anyway... On to our second chapter of the day, and it's back to John. This is John 8, so if you remember in his last chapter, John killed a dead man. And uh, so this is the the fallout for that, and everyone, fairly enough, is quite shaken, and uh, Gior Mormont is a bit nonplussed at a dead guy trying to kill him, and John is a bit nonplussed at having to kill said dead man, so it's a little bit... if you thought it was cold at uh, at the wall before, it's probably quite cold now, but a bit more... An inner chill, maybe. This chapter is about John facing. Well, not just this chapter. The remaining John chapters. I think there is this one, and one more next week. And within them, it's John facing many choices, and it's about the choices that John has to deal with, basically. And we're going to get to in a minute, especially with, uh, his conversation with Aemon Targaryen. And I think that's quite. Fitting given that Ned has just had a, a single large choice placed in front of him and John has several. Um, and it makes me think of family, duty, honor, the Tully words, and what is their correct order? I think that's a question that's prevalent in this, in Catelyn's chapter, in uh, chapters last week. It really comes up again and again on what it comes again to what oaths you should obey, like Jamie says, and yeah, basically, what order is, is right? We'll see what John what john's theory on that is soon enough now i do think it's the beginning of a lucky path for john to become lord commander because we learn about the fallout from the other um from the whites and who died so jeremy riker he uh, died and he might have been a very popular candidate during the choosing in um, storm of sorts if he had survived the ranging which we can assume he probably would have gone on but um also, Smallwood, he, he dies, and Donald Noy, etc. So, not by John's own hand, but certainly obstacles to him becoming Lord Commander, they're slowly removed by the Whites and, and Mance as well. So, there you go. It's a bit of, you can call it luckier, I guess. It's Not for them, but certainly for John. Although, that's its own burden, I suppose. And Gior, he starts off talking about the Night's Watch forgetting their true purpose. I don't think we can really blame them, to be fair, They've done pretty well to keep the stories alive. 8,000 years is a pretty long time if it is indeed. 8,000 years. So you get a pass there, Jill. Not for too much else, but that that one, that's okay. So we spoke about the the other white and what happened. And it is noted that the other one, um, Jay for Flowers, he does eventually die again, like proper die, just by being slain by swords. They just chop him to pieces. So that's kind of important to remember because it doesn't get brought up again too much, and in like in the show it doesn't they make a big deal about needing particular weapons, so it's easy to forget that they can be killed with like just a sword, but you need like a good ten swords hacking away it so I guess that's good news it's not the best news, but uh <laughs> if you're gonna try and pull a silver lining out of this your uh, your swords can do something it might just cost you. A few things. And speaking of similarities to these whites, so as a big deal was made, uh, George notes that John pulls on black gloves because his hand is burnt. So now he's got black hands, like the whites, but also uh, like cold hands. And uh, just, it just also serves as a reminder that he is a crow. Uh, he is a black crow for this decision he's about to make in a few chapters' time. So there's kind of a duality there. John, he gets two inciting incidents at once. For most part, the Stark kids' storylines are direct knock-ons from their different uh, reactions to Ned's death in some way. So for Arya, because Ned dies, she gets thrown into the uh, into having to hide and having to be in the Riverlands for all that stuff. Sansa, because Ned dies, is thrown into the mercy of the Lannisters and becomes and becomes their pawn, and that sets off her storyline. Bran, a little less so, because he was already left on his own and had already fallen, but. Still, is a bit of a knock-on from Ned's death. Whereas John, he not only gets that, not only does Ned's death set him on a particular path, but this attack from dead men—that is what sets him off on um, the adventure north from the ranging in the next book. So, most characters get one. John gets two inciting incidents. So it just goes to show how important he is. So in this conversation with Gio, I think we can pull a few things. I think he's he's thinking of his family and all the people who could suffer if the dead come, come south. But he's also thinking that he gave his life for this one purpose. And now he remembers what that true purpose is. It's not just to command the wall, it's to actually repel the dead. And he has to see it fulfilled. He has to think that he's given up his life for something. Which I think is the reason why the ranging comes about. And it's geo it's just seeking out a legacy rather than he could just sit back and sort the wall out properly and try and man the other castles and basically all the things that John tries to do later when he's got a bit of time, but instead he you know he wants to go out almost with a bang. He wants something to be written. If you think uh, about the Kingsguard and their white book, if if the if the, the wall had a black book, Geor does not want his to say, uh, was in command when the dead came, and that's it. He wants his to say, went on the great ranging, found Benjen Stark, defeated the dead, and uh, Mance as well. And as we're going to get into, I'm sure, in months to come with Clash, we see how that that mission kind of gets taken by the wayside, and he becomes obsessed with Mance instead. But that's his thinking right here, right now. He wants a legacy, he wants a point to having spent half of his life or at least some of his life at the wall. And I, I think that t- ties back into what we said about Sansa last week. It's worse to sit and wait. It's just worse. Like we just saw, like we'll see with Catelyn in a little bit, where she has to wait for the Whispering Wood. Jill doesn't want to just sit and wait for dead to come. That's horrible, obviously. He wants to go out looking rather than waiting. He wants to go to the dead men. And maybe there's some strategy in that, that if he does come uh, across them, and maybe he can delay them getting to the wall and save the people south some time but that is kind of illogical given that no one at the south knows and the wall is the best defense it just leads a lot of men to his death. Also on Jor, I wonder if he had been keeping Longclaw back in the hopes that Jorah eventually would join him on the wall and would kind of repent and then uh, you know they can have a bonding moment with Jor passing the, the sword on as it should have been as it should have been done years before. Because let's not forget, it is his last words he says to Sam, go and get Jorah at the wall, go and make him take the black. So if he'd been hoping that for that for a long time, that's pretty interesting that he might have just been keeping Longclaw in the cupboard on the off chance that Jorah uh, would eventually join him. But then, if he's had this near-death experience and he's convinced himself, I've not got time to wait, I should give this away while I've got a chance, hey, this Jon Snow kid seems pretty cool, let's give it to him. I think Aziz uh, covered enough about the talk with Eamon, John's talk with Eamon, which is a really, really good part of uh, John's story in the book overall. And it's just it's and that mirror thing, again, it's Eamon is the other side of the pre- precipice that John stands at. He is one side of the answers to the questions that John's facing. You know, if John's looking down a split in the road about what he's going to do, Eamon is at the end of one of those Splits. That is what John could become, is what he's looking at. And obviously, uh, he doesn't realize how closely tied he is to Aemon, but that will hopefully come in the future. Okay, so the third chapter, Daenerys 7, which kind of opens on the aftermath of this slaughter uh, of the Lazarene and uh, a battle of another Kalassar, and Drogo has been victorious. So, good for Danny, kind of very bad for everyone else. So this is a mirror to what's happening in the Riverlands, or what's going to happen. But it's a switch in perspective because, for the most part, our Westerosi P.O.V.s are all on the side of the people suffering, minus Tyrion, he's not really on the side of the uh, Riverlanders. But Catelyn, uh, obviously, is the main one, and later we'll get Aya. So w- there will be they're going to be seeing things in the Riverlands from a sympathetic point of view, whereas Daenerys is on the other side. She's one on the side of the victors which we don't get too often. Like I said, we have not really been seeing this on page yet for the Riverlands, but we certainly will be uh, in Clash and Storm and going forward and and feast as well, I suppose, with Brienne. But the perspective is different again for this chapter because at least in, uh, I think as he's mentioned, like this is basically three battles in a row for the Westeros side of things. And so you can add that in here as well. But the perspective is very different because the battles we see in Westeros, they're at least between two armies. The Whispering wood and the green fork, uh, you can strip all the tactics and um, circumstances away. They are still between two armies, they're grand affairs that look and sound cool. And uh, yeah, there's that, there's drawn up maps and strategy, and both sides know it's kind of what's going on at least. There's nothing like that at all here. There's no okay, there, there is two sides if you want to count the other Kalasar, but for the Lazarene. They didn't know Drogo was coming. I mean, they were already suffering under the other uh, the other Karl. I can't remember his name now. But there's no, they're not fighting back. They're not an army. This is slaughter, not a battle. So if we say the other ones, the other battles are uh, sound and look cool. Nothing sounds or looks or cool or even stomachable in this chapter. It's a really uh, sobering chapter. And we got to remember, this is like a, basically a class war. The Dothraki don't even see the Lazarene as true people. Uh, they say at one point that they do honour to them. They think they are they think they think are benefiting these people by slaughtering them because it's the best death that creatures such as these can hope for. So, I mean, ugh. if you didn't feel bad enough just about the pure slaughter of it, then you can also remember that the Dothraki see the Lazarine basically as advanced animals. And uh, we've got to remember they've said before that the Dothraki, they think it is their right to rule over... Or lesser people speak to the Greek so you, you really get into some horrible mentalities beyond the physical here so Daenerys she is forced to see the brutalities of war for the first time really she's seen some some death and some bad things previously but I don't think anything on this scale and it's difficult for her to realize what power can actually do she's she has to realize that she's laid a hand in this as much as drogo's calling the shots she he is calling the shots for her benefit and uh, it's it's difficult for her to realize what she's done kind of and what can happen i think the there's the theme of a sword without a hilt that gets brought up with mum pretty soon and uh, Dalla, mance's wife she says it as well about magic and storm of swords but I think it applies to people too, just like Drogo. Drogo is pretty much a sword without a hilt because you unleash him and things like this happen and you're pretty hard to rein him in. And she kind of Daenerys she she tries to justify it to herself saying, Well this is the this is the price, etc. And the idea that these lives are being given so that Danny can get her throne, that's tied very strongly to what to what Miri Mazdua promises about lives paying for Droga in a few chances time, so it all still starting to connect. When she's watching the these poor Lazarine be killed and raped and everything else, uh, there's a quote where Daenerys says she knew what it felt like. So if she's referring to her early time with Droga, then this, this is a very complex and confusing emotional moment for her because she's got to face someone that she now loves uh, we can't deny that once made her feel that way once made her feel scared and and, and vulnerable and in that threat and I mean she could be referring to the general feeling with Viserys because she was always scared of Viserys but neither very good for her psyche to be honest and aside from the physical violence here, we also have the aspect of taking slaves, slavery. Obviously, a huge part in Daenerys' is arc, and I guess this is kind of kicking off the beginning of her, her liberator role, her liberation arc. She wants to be good. She wants to save as many as possible. But again, that's difficult for her because, again, she has to look at her relationship with Drogo and confront the fact that she was once essentially sold to him. Now, she doesn't think that directly in this chapter, but has to... There's there somewhere in her subconscious that she was a slave and that's kind of why I think that's why this watching this feels so bad to her and why she wants to save as many people as possible as like we just said that's why she wants to be a liberator and it just so happens we get the first mention of Slaver's Bay at the same time uh, Marine specifically it's the first mention so that's a nice tie-in that's a nice hint to where Daenerys is going to go on the theme of um, freeing slaves and we see Daenerys trying to save um, and I always struggle with this name Eroway? Eroway? I'm going to go with away I've no idea if I'm honest with you. She tries to save Eroway and, and the other girls by suggesting that they are taken as wives instead, which is admirable, but Daenerys is forgetting the lessons that she's learned here. She can't just force Dothraki to start marrying people and change their ways when this is obviously ingrained as a, a, a core pillar in their culture. And even if I mean, she's nowhere near that level of authority anyway. So even if she were, even if she was powerful enough to command that, it's just it's just not that simple. She's learned so much about simulation, but she's trying to take shortcuts now and trying to solve problems quicker than is possible. Basically, there are no shortcuts between changing a, a culture and a way of life so quickly. And I mean, that's basically the problem that's going to plague her going forward, isn't it? it she's going to find similar set of problems about imprinting different ways on different cultures mainly in marine and to be fair the protection she has off of different people when she tries to solve these problems is fleeting anyway because airway soon suffers and astapor goes back to cleon the uh, whatever his name is the butcher dude the people she saves they come under the bloody flux. there is there's no shortcuts that's the unfortunate lesson to know it's got to learn that this is complicated difficult stuff and uh nothing can be solved in the click of a finger. I find it really interesting that Danny's arc eventually comes to one of liberation when she is so involved in a major part of the slavery economy here. Uh, We learn a lot more later about how the cities of Slaver's Bay interact with the Dothraki and how the continent of Vessos basically has this economy. But it's made clear for now in this chapter that the, the Lazarine, the land men, aren't a threat. They aren't Gaining tactical land, they weren't even in the way for Drogo marching on Westeros him some ships. He's come here specifically because the landmen, the Dothraki sorry, see the landmen as cattle that can be sold to pay for ships. And to be fair, I'm pretty sure Drogo could have ponied up the dough anyway, given all those treasures he got from Iliaro and his general raidings and uh, the toll that Dothraki take at the at Ves Dothrak markets. But then why spend that when you can just hop over to Lazarine quickly and uh, destroy people and sell them for some slaves for some uh, profit? Why not, is the Dothraki thinking. And we've also got to note that Jorah seems to be, um, he's not an active participant, I suppose, but he doesn't, he's not kicking up a fuss, is he? Because slavery is not new to him either. So with all this violence swirling around, we've got to wonder, is this going to come back uh, for Daenerys in Winds of Winter, we gotta remember she's just met Mago at the end of Dance. Now Carl Mago and George has said that he will play an antagonistic role for her in the Winds of Winter. So all the uh, confrontation between Daenerys and certain Dothraki is that going to come back? Is it? Is her gaining of the Dothraki going to be as simple as in the show? No, I do not think it is. Okay, our midway chapter today, Tyrion uh eight i think it is and big big chapter obviously because it's our first real big battle on on the page and big intros for ashay and like i said more importantly pod our favorite so it's hardly surprising this is actually the longest chapter in all of a game of thrones by my superb calculations uh it's a really good chapter for reading a battle i think george is probably chomping at the bit to get to this and uh, really get some real fighting down on on page on paper because hey he likes battles he's good at them and uh, the strategy of said battle isn't there just for strategy's sake it isn't there just to be a cool read and satisfy george's good strategy writing it also is about the people involved it links directly to whether tywin is trying to have Tyrion killed and it just keeps readers invested on a personal level he could have had Tyrion just uh, reel off this um, strategic checklist basically and describe the battle bit by bit but it becomes more interesting for everybody because we don't know if um, Tyrion is in danger from his own father as well it just makes it a lot more uh, accessible for the reader and if we if we do want to accept for a moment that Tyrion was trying to kill Tyrion in this or at least wasn't bothered if he died that's, so two battles Tyrion has fought in, someone on his own side has tried to kill him, if we think about Mandon Moore in, uh, in the Blackwater. And that just makes me wonder, because Tyrion, where we left him in Dance of Dragons, is about to fight in a third battle. So is someone on his own side going to try and kill him there? Who knows? Just a good thing to think about. But before uh, we actually get to all of that, let's go back to the beginning of the chapter. Because firstly, we get a... A good sign of who Tywin is and his existence on different classes of people. Uh, I think that's shown brilliantly with the two types of food. There's uh, pork and I think, yeah, suckling pork, I think Tyrion says, for the officers. Uh, But the general soldiers, they have nothing, essentially. It's Bronn. Bronn has to go out fish and trout and that's their dinner. So just a really good example of how Tywin views his army and the, the different classes within now tywin he used reverse psychology on the clansmen and it, it worked a treat to get them to fight for him so he figures he'll try it on Tyrion too and what do you know it works pretty much the same i do not know if Tyrion knows he's playing he's uh being played by his father or if it even really matters in the long run because as we're gonna see in a minute he knows what Shea is on some level but that doesn't stop him so even if he did know about tywin kind of manipulating here Probably would have done it anyway. Now again, if we look at Tywin, if we think he's trying to get rid of the clans by putting them in the vanguard and put him in the he wants the left to collapse and all that jazz, I wonder if that's because he's either doesn't want to pay them uh, or he wants to weaken Tyrion's position. And we just we just know this is kind of a, a Tywin thing. He uses people, and then, uh, if they should happen to be extinguished in some way, then uh, all the best for him. And it's just a good mirror because that's basically exactly what Rus is trying to do on the other side. He's trying to s- sacrifice certain people to his advantage. So that's a, there's a mirror right between these two armies, basically. And again, if we are accepting that Tywin was actively trying to have Tyrion killed, or at least was just putting him in the worst possible position, that's a pretty risky game to be playing at this moment in time considering Jamie is out in the field. And this is before the Whispering Woods, so Jamie appears safe, and I'm sure Tywin has the utmost confidence in him. But still, accidents happen. Jamie could have just got killed by a random arrow or whatever. And so if that had happened and Tyrion dies, Tywin winds up with essentially zero heirs and his big thing is legacy. So that's a bit of a kick in the gonads. And, um, I mean, we can kind of assume that he's already planning on this point of getting Jaime out of the King's Guard now that he's... Joffrey gets put on the throne and he controls Joffrey via Cersei, he can do anything he wants, can't he? So I, we got to think that's already in, his, in the back of his mind. So keep, mm-hmm. we're going to keep looking at Tywin because there's just more propaganda from him. He's got the horse, he's got the armour, he talks the talk going around but when you look at it and I think Aziz did get to quite a, of, um, quite a lot of this he none of that really does anything for him as a commander he does not show himself in a good light as a military commander here he doesn't brief Tyrion he doesn't use his personnel properly and you've got to wonder if this is just overconfidence on his part because he, he thinks oh my opponent is Rob Stark the kid who's never fought any battles he's literally a kid or if it, is it just Tywin's reputation has always been overinflated? Like most of what we know of Tywin, maybe it's all talk. Maybe you can just chip them flakes of gold right off and uh, the beneath is not so not so shiny. But I do think that him leaving Tyrion out of the plan is a funny reversal again of um, Edmure being left out of Rob's plans later. So let's switch up to um, Shay, and there's, uh, I I lost the quote, but there's a quote about how he feels when he enters Shay for the first time after they uh, they are acquainted. And it's about, we're going to get a whole bunch more of this at Clash and Storm, but it's Tyrion knowing on some level that he is buying Shay's love and her physical affection. But but also about him being unwilling to ever examine the fact um, that he he straight up believes no one could love him due to due to that's what he's been told all his life. Basically, he's just had that reinforced by Tywin and Cersei, and well, obviously, so much of this just zeroes right back in on Tysha and the absolute mind melt that is. And I think we we can basically see this is this relationship between him and Shay. It's a real uh tying from present to past something that's happened so far in Tyrion's past is still really present essentially we can see Tyrion wants another Tysha um as we're going to find out which turns out to be fatal for, for Shay because of what Tyrion wants her to be instead of what she is and like we say he knows that he knows that right now right at the beginning first day he knows what Shay is. He knows he's not. She's not Tysha, but that doesn't stop him. And obviously, that that gets even more convoluted, and complex, and haunting when Jamie tells Tyrion actually that Tysha wasn't a sex worker at all, and actually did genuinely love him. So, and then considering he gets told that, and then what happens with Shay? Uh, yeah that is the beginning of the dark turns for Tyrion, and so we see the roots of that right back here and his just unwillingness to to look at how badly affected he's been by taisha <sighs> okay so back to the battle itself then if we're let's get past that really dark moment and move on to the much happier uh subject of horrible battles with hundreds of men dying and also not just men it does. It is mentioned Gregor's horse goes down. So not a good book if uh, you're Gregor gains horse. Not a good book at all. So Tyrion notes that he doesn't see any Bolton banners on the field. And um, so that's kind of giving us a hint that Roose is throwing the game here. Which is pretty lucky for Tywin. Because if Roose hadn't been quite hard to throw the throw the battle one way. Things could have gone really badly for Tywin. Considering how badly they already went. So the Lannisters, they eventually win. But on. I'm doing air quotes here on a podcast. I'm doing air quotes because is it a win, really? It's kind of a, a hollow victory, like some of Rob's will turn out to be later on. Tywin has beat Roos, or Roos's or men, anyway, the ones that he sent in. But, but so what? The war is not done in a scorecard. You can't just say, well, okay, you took this place, but I took this many men. Let's compare. Tywin is basically in a worse position overall because Rob has slipped past him and is on his way to... Uh, to Riverrun and we know what happens so tactically it's a big loss and within the battle we get the first chance of half man and uh, it's it's kind of wildly impressive Tyrion does so well in the battle considering his physical limits his his age and the, the fact he, he probably had zero training he wasn't trained by the master at arms next to Jamie. I don't think that's ever mentioned uh, certainly he wasn't any good at it and uh, he okay, he has a nice set of armour back at Castle Rock, but that is probably for show, like most things of the Lannisters. I don't think Tyrion has ever spent much time wearing that or using it, putting it to use. No, definitely not. Anything he does have in his head about battles and, and skill at arms would be from books. We did open Tyrion's first POV with him reading about siege engines, so maybe he learned a bit of tactics too. But the actual surviving the battle incredibly uh, incredibly impressive and perhaps that is why much much later in dance Tyrion remembers the green fork better than he remembers the Blackwater, uh, even though obviously the Blackwater is more recent he remembers the green walk and maybe that the green walk the green fork and uh, maybe that's because it is his first and uh, it's just so hard to forget okay so let's shift from one battle to the other and uh, we're on to Catelyn 10 now which is the one with the whispering wood which is uh, one of my favorite battles of the series I'm sure many of you will uh, will agree as well so uh, like as he's uh, got to on Sunday I think there's a very different perspective Tyrion is obviously out there involved in the battle Catelyn has to sit and wait and kind of watch we don't get the on screen version of the whispering of wood uh, version of the whispering wood but there are some similarities because Catelyn and Tyrion they are both lower rung in terms of an army Tyrion, he does get to take part, but he doesn't get to take part in the actual planning. So at least Catelyn gets that. But then again, Catelyn isn't thinking about herself. She sits on the side and is worried about Rob and the people in the battle. Tyrion, oh, very obviously, is mainly concerned with himself. But uh, we're going to see this role of waiting. Well, we're going to see it in the future. We've already seen it in the past. We had, we saw it with Sansa, where when Ned's uh, men were being killed in the ha- Tower of the Hand. She had to just sit and wait, and we're going to see it again. We'll see it. Arianne Martell in Feast of Crows. She just, that's not a battle, fair enough, but she has to just sit and wait. She's made to sit on the sidelines for a bit. And Daenerys, she, when the uh, when she's doing her sieges of Slaver's Bay, she has to sit and wait again and wait for news. Yeah, I guess that's just the, the gender role of Catelyn being made to wait like Sansa and like she had to when she was a child, she says very often. She spent a lot of her childhood just waiting for her father to come back, and uh, I guess that's kind of being mirrored here. But while she waits, she finds a strength in the nature of the Riverlands, and there's some really good uh, physical descriptions of, of the, the land itself and, and how that makes Catelyn feel, and how she's drawing strength for that. She's returning home finally, and seeing us home is such a big part of the Stark Kids journey. And obviously, Winterfell is made to feel like home for the reader. This is what Catelyn's experiencing now, and I saving River Run is huge, obviously. But I feel that this is where Rob earns the rule of the Riverlands. This is half the reason he gets made king of this land, in, as well as the North. This is out in the wild. This is out in the the countryside itself. And the Riverlands are so based in their countryside. They've got the most small folk, and they live off the land, etc., etc. There's no cities. It's all land and small folk, and stuff like that. And he uses the terrain to his advantage and um, to his advantage and to Jamie's demise while making great use of the blackfish, which is another another favourite character of mine. And like we said earlier, a river lander. And it's also just worth noting quickly here that they do pass back through the Whispering Wood in Storm when they go back to uh, the twins. So. So at this point in the story, for first-time readers, this is a massive upswing. The outcome of this battle, Jamie is a massive villain still at this point. We haven't got his POV yet. There's no redeeming qualities basically at all. He's just a gobby little shit who, last time, last time we saw him, he was ordering the death of uh, of Jory and the others. So this is a huge, like hell yeah, moment for the the reader who sympathises with the Northern cause, which I assume most do. And it's it's basically spitting right in Tywin's eye. We've just seen kind of Timon kind of get his come up, comeuppance in the last chapter and now the other side of that. It's, just, it's George at his best. He's setting up all this positive confidence. He's making us say, hey, yeah, brilliant. Really, we've got, things are going well for the Starks. And uh, by the end of this little bunch of chapters, it all comes crashing down with Ned's head. And uh, not just an upswing in that regard, but in for the actual war campaign as well. Not only have they wiped an enemy out of Jamie's army, but they gain, or they will gain soon, uh, River Run and uh, its men in the process. The Riverlords, whilst also cutting Tywin off from the west, cutting down his supply lines. So basically, it's a uh, it's a complete switcheroo from the position prior to the Green Fork. We just said the Lannisters looked like they were a really, really good position with River Run under siege, etc., etc. Two Lannister armies coming, and. Nope. Rob is now suddenly on top, and with the aftermath of this, we don't get to see the battle of the camps um, actually on screen. But this happened. It, I think, it literally happens like a day after the Whispering Wood, if I remember correctly. And yeah, like we say, Rob is in a, a really good position here. And if it hadn't been for Joffrey slash Littlefinger being in power at King's Landing at the wrong mo- moment, the war would have been all but won. Alas, ding ding ding, alas, alarm. So some extra further notes for the battle then. So Darren Hornwood, he he uh, bites it unfortunately in this battle which completes the double the double whammy for House Hornwood and poor Donella which kicking off her storyline we're going to pick up in Clash unfortunately. And also lastly, so Rob, he rides with several, several members of key northern families his, his little version of a Kingsguard. And it just seems similar to, uh, to Brandon and Ned in their own youth. And to be fair, it's lucky they did form up, given Jamie's really efficient last charge, and uh, what would have happened if they hadn't been there. But it also just serves to tie the north together, It ties Cast together, and even though they come off worse for it, and uh, so on and so forth. Let's move on to Daenerys Eight, our second Daenerys of the day. So this is the one if you uh, if you can't remember that it really all blows up for the Khalasar. Drogo gets taken in the tent. Mary works her, her evil magics, and everything just goes wrong. Everything, basically. And we get some of the most vivid, disturbing descriptions in the book. The tone is set really early by the physical senses, and it all everything just feels wrong in this chapter, right from the beginning. It's all end of the world type stuff. It says a little bit later on in the um, in the chapter like that there's, there's a sky without stars, and just makes you feel like yeah the world is ending something bad is happening basically is what George is trying to get across and he certainly manages that. And so this is basically where Drogo is he dies here really, essentially, doesn't he, even though he technically lives. Um which we're gonna find out next week. Not really, not really is this is the end of Drogo's life essentially. And I think with Drogo's Death we can kinda of round out the three kings that die in Game of Thrones if you were will allow Viserys that title as, as beggar king. All three of them they basically brought over, they brought about their own deaths, their own avoidable deaths through their own hubris and vanity and the need to prove themselves. So Drogo's the latest in that version because he he could have survived really if he'd listened to Miri maybe, or if he'd just had a wound treated properly or whatever. It was avoidable. And all the Dothraki world building that we've had throughout the book, throughout these chapters, they pay, off, they pay off in this particular chapter as it did when Viserys died. So we're getting these tent poles in the Dothraki storyline where their world building comes back and their culture and structure and their chain of command all come back to be shown. And that's exactly what happens here, where Daenerys has to be reminded about. The Dothraki be following strength and not sons, etc., etc. And although Daenerys has made a huge attempt to become a true Dothraki, were much more than Viserys could have ever managed. There's still similarities between her and him coming up against Dothraki custom. Daenerys kept up with her assimilation because it suited her, at least after the initial part of the marriage where she had no no power to speak up anyway now that it goes directly against her wants she goes against it and that's the same thing that happened with Thysarys he was at least happy to kind of I mean he didn't make any efforts to assimilate but he was happy to go along with it when he thought he was going to get something out of it when it went against what he wanted that's when he made the mistake of going right against Dothraki culture and that's kind of what Daenerys is doing here so we get the beginning of the life pays for death themes that we're going to see repeated throughout most of the magical storylines we get a lot of that from Bran. We get a lot of, definitely a lot from Melisandre, obviously. That's the beginning of that here. And we talked about Daenerys kind of going against Ofraki and maybe making some mistakes. Even Dora tells her off here for what she's planned to do with Mirian stuff. And that just shows us how far that she's gone. It's beginning to, beginning of the connection to Ashai. A lot of mentions for shy in this um, chapter. And, um,. We're going to get more of that from Quaithe in the future. And also for Jorah, uh, this to mention, he talks about how the, the Blood Riders, the Coes, they're dangerous because they're dead man walking. So what's the point? They can basically do whatever they want. And that reminds me very heavily of the deserters and the talk of uh, Night's Watch deserters. The man whose life is forfeit is uh, the most dangerous right back in Brand 1. So talking about how Drogo goes down and the Kallusar is breaking because of it. We got to remember that Daenerys she loses everything, and the Khaleesar they basically lose everything all because of a single wound. And I wonder if that is George trying to tell us something, while Rob is uh, off winning these battles in amazing fashion. That basically anyone can be brought down, and don't don't believe the hype. Basically, so there's a quote here later on um, about Drogo. It says he was a fire in human skin. So that might be a bit of a hint of where Drogo's body is going to end up in a few chapters and um, well, I won't go too far into the, the utter chaos at the end of the chapter as he's did that uh, for me but I just think that, that that chaos and that real battle climate that is basically what the Lazarene just had visited on them in the last uh, Daenerys chapter so something to think about there Okay, lastly today is Aya 5 the chapter that everyone should know and remember well because uh, we'll get straight to the point, this is the chapter where Ned dies. There's uh, there's some stuff before that, but that's definitely the point of the chapter. And it's the the point of the book, it's the whole climax of the book. I don't think it's um, there's any argument about that, really. Game of Thrones is Ned's book, and is, he is the main... It's sort of the most chapters, and his uh, investigation is the main plot and uh, this is the end of that this is the end of Ned which is the spark plug for basically all the other storylines almost all of them in uh, in the coming books I'm going to talk about Ned's Ned's death in a moment let's at least go back to the beginning of the chapter because we do get a lot about um, Aya at the beginning of the chapter and especially a lot of hints about the sorts of dangers ...that is going to face going forward... ...if you remember she's, she's been on the streets for a little while now... ...since she escaped the Red Keep... ...she's found it's it's not too easy... ...and like I said there's these sort of dangers of theft and sexual assault... ...and they're all going to come back again to haunt Aya later on... ...this is her discovery of true poverty and hardship... ...and if you think right back to Sansa's first chapter... ...where um, I used to hang out with Micah on the baggage train... ...and kind of slum it in Sansa's view... That's what so Sansa, that's what she thought of as poverty and now Aya's discovering what actual poverty, hardship and uh, and all that is. It's a new world entirely. She tells us about the bowls of brown and we know from Tyrion's later chapters exactly what kinds of things are in those bowls. And the cooking of it sounds absolutely disgusting. It's just like this one vat that they it's just always there and they just chuck things in every and you know, it's been going for days or weeks. Ugh. Oh dear, no, thank you. And uh, there's also this quote about her: she must have talked wrong or something when she's she tries to make friends with some of the other orphans and people on the street. Like her, her accent is obviously giving her away, uh, which it will do later at Hall as well. She gives herself away as Highborn. And if you remember, the Lannisters try and play a trick on her. At the Docks they dress up some people in Stark. Um, Start clothing in the hopes that I will approach and give herself up uh, I actually forgot about that, it's pretty clever for Cersei or whoever's pulling the strings there, I would have liked to see if that would have worked on Sansa because in theory she's supposed to be less street smart and it's, I is supposed to have her wits about her but I do not think that would have worked on Sansa I think she's too smart for that, I think if anything she would have noticed it even quicker because she knows about who's who and what's what We've got to be, we really have to thank our lucky stars that Needle wasn't stolen that first night. That's a, a good bit of luck. And yeah, basically, I just was a real rough time of it, and uh, that is definitely what we're going to get going forward. But onto the crux of the chapter is obviously Ned, Neddy, Ned, Ned, and his heading. So. The narrative is that Ned was killed by the politics and the customs of King's Landing and that he wasn't a match for them. But if you think about it, those are exactly what should have saved him. He should have been kept as a hostage and used, and uh, the customs are that you don't behead someone on the Sept of Baelor and you don't behead a, a prisoner who's admitting what he did wrong, and especially when he's still useful. But... That's if you don't have Joffrey running the show. And this is really Joffrey's big step onto the national stage. This is really what his opening is. And uh, God, his smile. He's turning to smile at Sansa uh, just before he gives the command. That's got to be one of the most sickening moments of the entire series. Um, it's not quite as bad as Littlefinger claiming Jane Poole earlier on. like we I think that was last week we talked about that. But it's pretty bloody bad it's pretty well gets you in the in the gut doesn't it now before that ned actually he swears on the seven which he doesn't worship if he if he's being technical he should be swearing on the old scott on the old gods because what does a what does a promise on the faith of the seven mean to ned really it's basically a false declaration so i wonder if he's trying to hint there if he had the, the frame of mind let's not forget he's been starved and he's feverish and all that so maybe he's not in his right mind anyway he's just literally doing what he's been, well maybe he's literally just saying what he's been told to say but having said that even if he was in the frame of mind to try and take a dig and swear on the wrong gods maybe it's just the fact that bringing up the old gods outside the Sept of Baylor probably wouldn't have made him many extra friends there's an extra little dig in in Ned here that he has to admit that he was trying to kill Joffrey um obviously he wasn't but his his whole arc is over the top about saving children and he is literally put in, in a whole heap of effort to save Joffrey specifically and put himself in danger trying to save Joffrey and the others and here he is having to say that he's tried to kill Joffrey that's just really a, a big slap in the face and it makes all of his efforts seem like such a waste now let's go through what happens what happens on the on the stage with all the background players when Joffrey does give the command. So the quote goes, the High Septon clutched at the King's Cape. Um, we don't give our nameless High Priest much credit when remembering Ned's death, but whatever his political alignment might have been at this time, having an execution on the, the holiest, or maybe second holiest if you live in Old Town, the holiest site in the world, you're probably pretty pissed. You do not want that to happen. It's not, not good. Now the next quote is Varys came rushing over waving his arms. And this is this is the most public thing Varys ever does. It might be the only pure reaction we ever see from him. Uh really. It's quite interesting. And of course Littlefinger doesn't protest at all. Um well Cersei, she does. She tries to stop it because she's smart enough to know the Lannisters get screwed over by Ned's death. They lose their major bargaining chip, Jamie is in big, big trouble. If, um, if this goes down and um, perhaps she should have realized that um, purely talking to Joffrey was not going to reverse his decision maybe this is the first time she truly realizes what she has on her hands with her son and it's again it's that sword of outer hilt thing this might be her great her great realizing moment of oh god what's what are we in store for here and there's an interesting parallel between Cersei and Catelyn because when Catelyn first meets with Rob, uh, uh, the previous up at Mokhalin, she considers sending him home and telling him off, but realises that she can't because it would affect his future authority as Lord of the North. So maybe Cersei sees something similar here. It is not a good look. It's not a good first look as the new king to have your mum... Basically renege on your first uh, public decree. If she just outright forbids this, which well, she does have the power to do. She is regent. She either forgets that in this moment or she just doesn't think she can make him look so weak or whatever. But um, you would think that she would place Jamie's life, which is what is at stake here, above that. But apparently not. If only Ned had have had enough of his mind to go to ask Joffrey to swing ice himself... That would no, have been a good sight. Do, you, do we think Joffrey could even lift ice? I really doubt it. Would have been, would have been quite funny. Speaking of ice, there's some stunted secrets going on here. So, Ned used ice at the beginning of the book, right back in round one, to kill or to execute Garrod. And yeah, that obviously kept Garrod quiet about the secret of the others from what he'd seen above the wall. In this um, version at the end of the book, Ice is keeping Ned quiet about Jon and Joffrey and their parentage. So those secrets, none of them die, but they are stunted and they're kept back for a bit. Yeah, there's some thematic resonance there of how Ice is both the name of the sword, but is also the quiet, subtle side to the Song of Ice and Fire, in opposition to loud, brash fire. Fire comes with dragons and dragons, Beth, and uh, cool explosions if you want to watch the show and stuff like that. Whereas the wall which is made of ice is where secrets are kept and where beyond it the biggest mysteries lie. So I just think there's some really neat tying in together of the uh, naming of swords there. And Aya's personal ending is very similar to the Red Wedding again which was have mentioned before. It's left um, we don't. It's left open. We don't know if she's died at the end of this chapter. There is a, a knife being thrown around. We don't think so, but you know. And um, certainly Aya doesn't know what's happening. And at the end of the Red Wedding, she takes uh, the flat of an axe in the back of the head. So it's very, very similar. So final note for this chapter and for today. If we want to accept that Littlefinger was a big part of persuading Joffrey to do this, then I see this as the first of Littlefinger's removals of Sansa's protections or Sansa's crutches takes away Ned here obviously he is Sansa's biggest protector and uh, pillar of support etc so okay that's one down later on he knows that Tyrion is going to be taken away when uh, he arranges Joffrey's death he knows that Tyrion will likely be blamed and part of that is his arrangement at that point Tyrion is Sansa's husband so that's another supposed to be another Symbol of protection, person of protection, that's removed. And then a bit later on, he very clearly removes Lysa himself when he shoves her out the moon door. So that's Ned, that's Tyrion and Lysa, and not that, well, especially Lysa or well, Tyrion would have been anywhere near the protectors that Ned would have been, but still, they were obstacles. And now Littlefinger has pretty much free reign with Sansa, doesn't he? So he's succeeded there. What a fun note to leave the podcast on today. How uh, (laughs) Peter manipulates Sansa into his will. Yeah, anyway, so there we have it. Those are our seven chapters today and that will wrap up our podcast. It's good to see everyone back. Hope you enjoyed. Um, I'm sorry if it's been a bit rushed, but Castle's book demands a lot of my time at the moment making a big push on that. And also, we're me and uh, Lady clear off to Ireland this week, so really trying to get things done quickly. So thanks for stopping by, and uh, do enjoy the trip back across the God's Eye. We will see you next week for the the end of Game of Thrones. Yeah, they're already. Thanks to the season of share again. I hope they enjoyed their trip. Uh, uh, from what I've heard, they certainly did. And uh, thanks to everyone for tuning in. See you next time.